Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This is part two of the two-part series on the Gabby Petito case. If you haven't done so, please listen to part one before you listen to this part. I'm going on writing and producing four episodes in the last two days as I prep for another escape to the cabin with my boys. Uh, I'll be releasing these episodes remotely so I don't have to work on the podcast while I'm at the cabin. So you guys can experience new content most days, but I am going to enjoy my time away. Just please forgive me if my voice is a little weak uh, during this episode. But if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And as of right now, I do have some True Blue Crime merch uh, that will be attached to any donation. Uh, I will send uh, out the merch to you if you donate on Patreon or... I'm working on getting it the tiers on PayPal. I have it set up on Patreon. So uh, if you hop over to the website, check out Patreon or PayPal. Uh, if you donate, I'll definitely uh, send you some True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Now in part one, we introduced you to Gabby Petito and her young adventure-filled life. Her and her fiance Brian Laundrie had set out for a four-month tour of the United States in July of 2021 using her camper van. As a social media personality, she was hoping to build on her Instagram and YouTube followings to sustain a nomadic lifestyle with Brian. In mid-August, just over six weeks into their trip, they were investigated for a domestic assault incident in Moab, Utah, in which they were eventually told to separate and no charges were filed. Brian would leave for Florida a few days later, but return after a week. So we pick up that story back on August 24th. This is the day after Brian returned to Utah. Gabby would FaceTime her mother, telling her they are leaving Utah and headed to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. And if you guys have never been, the Grand Tetons, they're just south of Yellowstone. And Yellowstone... Basically, you drive south out of the gate of Yellowstone, and if I recall right, you only drive for a little bit, and suddenly you're in the Grand Tetons. And this is an absolutely gorgeous um, part of Northwest Wyoming. If you ever have a chance, I highly recommend. It's one of my favorite national parks uh, between Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons. And I'll do my best. We're just gonna rapid fire off some dates here as we work towards the uh, kind of actual crime that's going to occur here. Uh, So the following day, which is August 25th, Gabby texted her mother several times that they're in the Teton Range of Wyoming. This day, August 25th, would be Gabby's last Instagram post. Then on August 27th, a couple vacationing in Jackson, Wyoming, witnessed another domestic incident between Gabby and Brian inside a Tex-Mex restaurant. The witnesses stated Gabby was visibly upset while Brian was angry with all the staff in the dining establishment. Brian was walking in and out of the place, verbally accosting the hostess and wait staff while Gabby cried. 
While no hostilities towards Gabby were seen, it was clear to witnesses that emotions were high once again. And it was said during the day on August 27th, uh, there was a lot of texts between Gabby and her mother, but really nothing of substance. So it wasn't as if she was talking about this incident in the Tex-Mex restaurant or Brian's attitude or anything um, that day. And also, I mean, there's reference to this this August 27th encounter. And I think the whole thing was just used more as a, this is going to be the last time anybody else is going to see Gabby alive. So yes, while their emotions are clearly high and that also might have a role in what's going to happen to Gabby, it wasn't as if, at least from what I read, that Brian was going after Gabby in the restaurant. It sounded like he was going after waitstaff. And there was no information as to what started this whole thing, what what was being said, uh, which is kind of disappointing because considering what a big day this August 27th is for this investigation, I kind of wish there was more information out there about, about this incident and what actually happened. And as I mentioned, August 27th was a day that Gabby had been texting her mother, but later in the day, Gabby's phone sends a text to her mother, and this is going to be kind of the first oh-no moment that the family has because this text is going to be questioned by family because Gabby had sent something about asking them to help Stan, and Stan, and this is how it was referred to, was as Stan, and Stan is Gabby's grandfather, but she never called him by his first name. And we all know what it's like when somebody sends you a text message, you expect them to communicate with you as if they're talking with you. And if there's somebody in your life, especially grandparents sometimes have those nicknames. Uh, like I know my my kids call my, my father Grandpa M to differentiate between the two grandpas. It's, there's never really been a, you know, one of those pop pop or you know, any type of those nicknames, but he he's just known as Grandpa M. They would never refer to him as, you know, his, his first name's Tom. They never refer to him as Tom or Grandpa Tom. So if all of a sudden I got a text from one of my kids saying, hey, can we, you know, go up and see Grandpa M at the cabin, I'd believe that to be my, a text from my kid. But if they said, hey, can we go up and see Tom at the cabin, I'd take a second and be, they never have, ever verbally in person or over text referred to him by his first name so you know this is going to be the same reaction that gabby's family is going to give this text when she sees this text about asking them to help stan and so they're immediately going to start to question who had gabby's phone why was gabby's why was somebody other than gabby using her phone to send them a text message and then on august 29th a couple picked up Brian Laundrie as he was walking along the side of the road in Coulter Bay, Wyoming. He told the couple that his fiance Gabby was at a nearby campground working on social media posts and he had gone for a hike and got lost. When he had asked for a ride from the couple, he mistakenly assumed they were going to Jackson, but in reality they were going to Jackson Hole. So he got angry and asked to be let out of the vehicle near Jackson Dam. And this is because he's trying to get back to the area of Jackson and Jackson Hole is I think it's something like 20 miles away from, from Jackson itself. And so getting a ride to Jackson Hole doesn't help him. It actually 
makes it more difficult for him to get back to the van, which is what he's trying to do. So he gets let off at Jackson Dam. Another woman then picked up Brian and gave him a ride to the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area. And this is a free open area camping site with no amenities. It sits in full view of the Grand Teton Range. It's a popular place for people to spend a free night or two while quote unquote roughing it. So you've got these campgrounds uh, that are these dispersed camping areas, I should say, that are uh, areas where people can just pull off the road. You can pitch a tent uh, out in the field and, and just sleep there for free. You can pull in with your RV or your camper van and just sleep the night away if you want to or the day away, I guess. You can you can use it as some people, some people will park an RV at the site and then use some type of a smaller vehicle, a car they pull behind or a golf cart or something like that to uh, explore the area. Um, basically, there's there's no amenities, there's no water, there's no electricity. It's it's a completely roughed area. But if you're traveling on a budget and you need an area just to pull over that you know is public use, that's that's what this campground is. And Brian had told this woman that his fiance was working on a social media blog from their van in the campground, and he had done a two-day hike along the Snake River. She offered to drive him right to the van, but he asked to be dropped off at the campground entrance. Gabby's family received a text from Gabby's phone the following day that said, no service in Yosemite, but Gabby's family is sure the text isn't from Gabby. So the last they heard from her was that she was supposedly in the Teton region, and that was, you know, they're communicating on the 27th, I guess I don't know for sure that she's saying that they're in the Tetons. Her last Instagram post is the 25th. And that's for sure from the Tetons. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to be later clear that this is not from Gabby, and the family knows that. And so this is going to be sent by Brian as, as an attempt to throw off where they are location-wise. But it just seems to me, I'm guessing plans-wise, if you go to Grand Teton, your next stop would be Yellowstone more than likely, and then you might go up to Glacier national park is probably your next stop after that so going straight from teton out to yosemite doesn't make sense but again nothing that brian's going to do from this point is going to make a whole lot of sense on september 1st roughly 67 hours after he was dropped off outside the campground brian arrives back in florida in gabby's van but gabby is nowhere to be seen and brian does not communicate any information to gabby's family about his return to florida or gabby's location so you can imagine this, Gabby's family has gotten these couple really weird texts that they don't believe are from her, one from late on the 27th, and then this one on the 29th from claiming to be in Yosemite. And a couple days have gone by, they're probably still some, somewhat concerned. And now this is tough because this, I have been to several of these national parks and there are parts of these parks where you are not gonna have any cell service. They're mountainous, uh, they're remote, they're made to be that way. It's supposed to be nature's beauty. Uh, they're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna have giant cell towers on top of uh, famous mountain peaks in these national parks. So it wouldn't be completely unheard of if you're in the area, but remember again, this is not somebody who's traveling just for the sake of traveling. She's traveling to extend her social media following and to, to grow it. 
And so the family's not seeing any Instagram posts uh, since the 25th. And Gabby would be going out of her way to go to locations that do have Wi-Fi or cell service so that she can post to Instagram and upload her videos to YouTube uh, because that's at this point her livelihood. So the family has to be concerned that as September 1st rolls around, nothing on Instagram for six days, complete lack of communication. Yes, some of that could be explained by being in areas of, of no cell service, but of all people, Gabby should be going out of her way to reach areas where she could be communicating with her family and with her followers. So there's you know a whole lot of alarm bells are going off right now for the Petitos. And what they don't know is that Brian has returned to Florida in Gabby's van without Gabby along. Uh, they're, at this point, they're just curious as to where Gabby might be, and I think they assume that Gabby's with Brian at this point. And it said Brian does not communicate any information to Gabby's family about his return to Florida, Gabby's location. So he's. it's not like he said, hey, just so you know, Gabby and I got in a big fight. She wanted to stay in Yosemite, and I drove the van back to Florida. She might be getting a plane ticket back to New York or something like that. It's not like he said anything to completely throw them off that way. But at the same time, they're just at a complete loss as to what's going on. And meanwhile, on September 6th, Brian and his family go camping together for Labor Day weekend. Gabby's parents have not heard from her in almost two weeks at this point. And Brian's family is going to catch a lot of flack, and I think some of it's deservingly so. But, and again, I don't know what Brian told them upon returning to Florida. You're future daughter-in-law doesn't come back from this trip your son is driving her van back i'm sure he could have said something especially since they already had that one break where he flew home it's possible he's like hey he might tell his family she flew home to new york uh she's taking a break up there i'm gonna take a break down here for a week and then i'll drive up to new york and get her Uh, again maybe something like that transpired or maybe he flat out said, I did something to Gabby and and I'm on the run. I, I, I don't know. Um, his family is notoriously going to be tight-lipped about everything, so we don't know what they knew. All we know is that they're going to act as if nothing happened, which is why as I said, they go camping together for Labor Day weekend, and Gabby's parents have not heard from her in almost two weeks at this point. So finally on September 11th, Gabby's parents report her missing to police in their hometown in New York. And again, this is going to be one of those difficult investigations because she technically lived down in Florida. I'm assuming that's where she would have been getting any mail or bills or anything like that to Brian's family's house. But her family is all in New York. And so they're going to do what most people typically do go into the local police department say hey our daughter our adult daughter's missing now the good thing is they didn't get pushed around by the police saying sorry you got to go report this down to to northport uh florida which is where brian lived Uh, they actually worked with gabby's parents and the investigators contacted northport florida police and requested that they do this welfare check on this missing person on Gabby. And when Northport officers arrived at the home of the the laundries, they were handed information for the family attorney and turned away from the house. And there was no conversation between the laundries and North 
support officers other than the attorney information. So again, this this is where they're going to really start to catch a lot of flack from the public because most people know there's only one person in the world at this point, potentially two if Gabby's alive, but only one person in the world that knows where Gabby is right now or where people should be looking for Gabby, even if she is alive, and that's Brian. So police officers are going to get this missing persons report and they're going to go talk to the last person known to see her alive or be with her while she was alive. And they get met with attorney information. And now some people will say it's America. You have a right to remain silent. You don't have to cooperate with with law enforcement if you don't want to. And that's true. And while that protects your civil rights and, and whatnot, it's there's nothing saying that the public has to accept that or cut you a break for it. So the, the family's going to get a lot of flack at this point, and the police are going to be frustrated and realize they're probably dealing with something a lot worse than a missing person. On September 15th, the North Port Police Chief took to Twitter to plead with the laundries to ask them to allow investigators to talk to Brian. Meanwhile, searches were being conducted in the Grand Teton area as it was the last place Gabby was seen alive, and the two witnesses who gave Brian a ride that day came forward to the FBI to advise them of where Brian was picked up and what he had said on that day and where they had given him a ride to the campground. It, so this had become a national news story at this point. So this, this couple, I think the first couple was from, I want to say it was Louisiana, and they're visiting uh, the national parks in Wyoming there. They're the ones that picked him up and started driving him to the wrong Jackson, uh, Jackson Hole instead of Jackson. They're going to, I think uh, the female half of that couple went on to some social media and said, made the announcement that they believe they gave Brian a ride that day. So the FBI tracks him down. They're able to, to confirm that this sighting does appear to be Brian. They're able to confirm where he was picked up. And then this other witness comes forward and she confirms where they drop or where he told her to drop him off where supposedly Gabby was in this van. So at least investigators have this area between the Snake River and this campground to kind of concentrate their search efforts because if they didn't have these two eyewitnesses that picked up Brian that day, the, you know, the last time anybody saw was that restaurant, but ultimately they could have been anywhere in the Wyoming, Idaho, Montana area within a short amount of time after that restaurant incident. So thankfully, because of these eyewitnesses, they're able to narrow the search area down, but this is still a very, very remote part of the United States. And the next day, September 16th, Gabby's family hired an attorney who prepared a statement that is, was read in public. The statement is aimed at Brian and says in part, please, if you're, you or your family have any decency left, please tell us where Gabby is located. Tell us if we are even looking in the right place. All we want is for Gabby to come home. Please help us make that happen. And then the lawyer would go on to state that Gabby's family has reached out to Brian's family for any information of where Gabby, Gabby might be, but the family had refused to communicate. So again, this has to be between law enforcement and especially for Gabby's family, just absolutely frustrating. 
again, there's one person in the world that they believe knows where they can find Gabby alive or dead, and that person is not cooperating with law enforcement. The family's not cooperating with law enforcement. It just had to be a terrible feeling to be Gabby's family at this point. And on the following day, September 17th, Brian's mother summoned Northport police to the family home to report Brian missing. They stated he took off on September 14th and don't know exactly where he went, but it's possible he entered a 25,000-acre wildlife preserve and swamp wetlands called the Carlton Reserve. This is in Florida. So simultaneous searches were now underway for Gabby in Wyoming and Brian in Florida. On September 19th, searchers in Wyoming located human remains that were consistent with Gabby Petito. The remains were later positively identified as Gabby's, and the search for her was over with a tragic outcome, but the search for Brian continued. Investigators were no longer looking in the reserve at this point, but they were operating under the idea that he could be on the run inside the United States. And this is going to be difficult for law enforcement because you've got this family that has been uncooperative the whole time. They knew darn well that Brian took off on the 14th, and, and you're you wait a few days, give him that head start before you report him as missing. With all the attention that this is getting and all that kind of stuff, if they really truly had any desire to help the investigation at all or try to do the right thing, they would have reported Brian missing right away. But they didn't. They gave him time to get a head start. And this is what concerned law enforcement at this point is they went, well, what if this whole Carlton Reserve thing is just a red herring. They already gave him a three-day head start. Could he be, you know, on the other side of the of the United States? He's already proved he can drive from Wyoming to Florida in three days, so he could be somewhere in the Western United States at this point. Uh, and we're wasting all of our efforts looking for him in this reserve. The family told us to look for him in. So. The FBI is not going to mess around at this point. They conduct a search warrant at the Laundry Home on September 20th, confirming to the media that the search was related to the Gabby Petito investigation, but declining to give any further details. And at this point, they've recovered Gabby's body. They know her cause of death, her manner of death. Uh, they believe Brian is obviously the one and only suspect for it. So they're going to try to find some evidence based on what they found with Gabby's body that can link him to this homicide so just a pretty standard homicide investigation search warrant at the laundry home but this is also going to get them access to documents that he has in his home if he's written anything down whatever it might be electronics that kind of stuff and hopefully in an effort to eventually charge him and convict him on on gabby's death and on September 23, the FBI issued a warrant for Brian Laundrie for his fraudulent use of a debit card while he was in Wyoming. While they declined to reveal if the card used belonged to Gabby, it was assumed that evidence was produced that showed he used her card and the warrant was grounds to arrest him on site while they built a homicide case against him. Because in America, even if you're assumed to have committed a crime like everybody did with Brian here, unless you've got probable cause for an arrest warrant, I mean, you technically can arrest him to bring him in for questioning, but you have 48 hours to charge him before you have to let him go. So if you can get him for another crime that is easier to prove than homicide, uh, such as him using a debit card uh, that didn't belong to him, and then once you get him arrested, 
you can tell the judge, hey, don't set bail because he's a homicide victim, he's a flight risk. The hope is that you can then hold him indefinitely while you build this homicide case and he's not out able to run or, or do anything more. And so the FBI used this uh, warrant for a, a much lesser crime as kind of grounds on a, on a pickup and hold on, on Brian if any law enforcement comes across him. Three days later, Gabby was laid to rest on September 26th in Long Island, New York. It said that a thousand people attended the service and the service was also streamed online. On October 12th, Gabby's cause of death was released and it was ruled that she died via manual strangulation. And while the pathologist ruled that her body had been outside for a time period of three to four weeks before discovery, he couldn't pinpoint her exact date of death via the autopsy results. And be eight days later on October 20th, human remains were found in a park in Florida next to a backpack and a notebook that belonged to Brian Laundrie. The body was found in Carlton Park Reserve, the area authorities suspected Brian was hiding out in. It had been the previous evening, October 19th, that members of the Laundrie family had informed law enforcement that they would be doing their own search for Brian the following day. On the 20th, they had met with law enforcement officers and after a quote-unquote brief search, the family and officers found articles that belonged to Brian. This led them to the area that Brian's remains were found in, which according to officials had been underwater during the time they searched the park in September. So this must be due to like the summer rainy season in Florida. I'm guessing these swamps must fill up with a lot of extra water during that time period and eventually it, it just drained down enough where the area had been in must have been you know, right on the edge of water uh, and then some big storm system came through and, and drenched the area and, and his remains were underwater when they searched uh, the area. But I, I guess I shouldn't say I find it too surprising that it didn't take the family very long to find him. My guess is they kind of knew where he was going to be going all along and again continued to not cooperate with law enforcement. Uh, I don't know if they knew that he was going to go there and commit suicide. I know I remember when this broke there was a lot of talk about him being this quote-unquote survivalists and could live out in the woods on his own forever and he could potentially be living out in this 25,000 acres of swampland forever um, but uh, ultimately the, the following day his body was identified and via dental records the cause and manner of death was released as a gunshot to the head and suicide so he took the uh, quote-unquote easy way out. And the notebook found near Brian included a written confession from Brian about his involvement in Gabby's death. And on January 21st, 2022, the FBI stated they had no indications that anyone else was involved in her homicide and the case was considered closed. But the story isn't over and probably never will be. Gabby is just one of far too many women to die as a result of domestic violence. Gabby's parents filed two lawsuits in reference to their daughter's death. The first lawsuit was a wrongful death case against Brian Laundrie's estate and against the family themselves for purposely interfering with the investigation into Gabby's disappearance. The lawsuit alleged that the Laundries put up significant and purposeful barriers to getting answers about Gabby while allowing Brian to avoid law enforcement and slip away, eventually taking his own life and denying the Petitos true justice in a court of law. You know, this is a civil lawsuit, so it's different than criminal you can be held accountable for actions in civil court that would never fly in a criminal court of law. So yes, while you 
do have rights against self-incrimination and criminal cases and all that kind of stuff, if your actions are so egregious that they prevent the discovery of somebody's body or you basically knowingly harbor this person, uh, even though they're not listed as a criminal or suspect, there's no warrants out from anything like that. It, it's that whole thing of you may not be criminally found guilty of something, but you can always be found civilly liable of something in, in America. And that, so that's what's going to happen in this case. Uh, judge is going to rule in favor of the Petitos and order that the laundries pay the Petitos $3 million. Um, and while they don't have that type of money, any money that is collected will go to the Gabby Petito Foundation. Meanwhile, the lawsuit against the Moab PD for $50 million is still underway. And this is something I couldn't find much information on in terms of where this is currently sitting. Um, and while I do understand the officers made some mistakes, I don't think they did so because they didn't want to do their job or didn't care about Gabby's welfare. They avoided their only true criminal action, which was arresting Gabby. And if they had talked to the 911 caller, maybe they could have changed their minds, but we're looking at it in 2020 hindsight, knowing what is gonna to happen to Gabby. And then if you look at it this way, what if the one caller that called 911 had said that Gabby was beating up on Brian, and then the other witness said it was Brian beating up on Gabby, would we expect the officers to forego the words of three people and suddenly arrest Gabby and not Brian? And maybe I didn't explain that well enough as I'm sitting here thinking about it. So if the original 911 witness had said that it was Gabby that was that was punching Brian, but then you get there and you find out you have another independent witness saying, no, it was Brian that punched Gabby. You get there and say, Gabby says, Brian hit me. And Brian says, yeah, I, I hit Gabby. Would you go back to that original 911 caller and say, well, I don't know, this one person said that that it was Gabby hitting Brian. I think we should you know, let Brian off the hook. I think we should arrest you know, Gabby because of this, what this one person said. So if you reverse roles here, I don't think it makes any sense to take the eyewitness account of one person and use that to say you would have done things differently against the account of the three other people. And again, that's just, as we're playing hindsight, if you want to play those hindsight games or the what-ifs or how they should have done things differently or they should have listened to this person instead, except flip it around and, and, and look at it that way too and then see if that still makes sense. Because if that doesn't make sense, then it doesn't make sense to do it in the other case either. And while I expect there will be a settlement with the Moab PD, and hopefully that money goes to if the foundation is used to help prevent further violence, it's more proof that no matter what a choice a police officer makes, it, they can all come back to bite him or her. And more change came about from this ordeal by several states, including Utah, looking at their domestic assault laws and adding more tools for law enforcement. In March of 2023, the Utah legislature passed a bill requiring law enforcement officers to conduct a lethality assessment when talking with victims of domestic violence. So these lethality assessments, they're basically questions that don't necessarily pertain to that specific incident, but they pertain to the relationship as a whole. So these are questions that are gonna be asked of a domestic assault victim uh, during the domestic assault investigation to determine what risk level this person is in in their current relationship so I'll, there's 11 questions here i'll read them real quick and you kind of get an idea of what these this lethality assessment is about 
So first off is if the aggressor has ever used a weapon against the victim or threatened the victim with a weapon. Second, if the aggressor has ever threatened to kill the victim or the victim's children. Third, if the victim believes the aggressor will try to kill the victim. Four, if the aggressor has a gun or could easily get a gun. Five, if the aggressor has ever tried to choke the victim. Six, if the aggressor is violently or constantly jealous or controls most of the daily activities of the victim. Seven, if the victim left or separated from the aggressor after they were living together or married. Eight, if the aggressor is unemployed. Nine, if the aggressor has ever attempted suicide to the best of the victim's knowledge. 10, if the victim has a child that the aggressor believes is not the aggressor's biological child. And 11, if the aggressor follows or spies on the victim or leaves threatening messages for the victim. So all of these questions, I mean, if anybody answers yes, I think it was if they answer yes to the first three, which is have they ever used a victim against them, threatened to kill them, or believes that they will try to kill them, those are automatic, I think, under Utah law. Now that these people are put in touch with uh, victim advocates that can help try to keep them safe. Uh, I think some of the other ones are there's automatic results if, if they answer yes to those. But basically, they, they've looked at over the years all the partners that have died via domestic violence, and they've looked at some of the behaviors that, that their aggressors have shown in the past prior to committing the act of, of domestic uh, homicide against them and the there's a commonality between a lot of these aggressors and these homicide suspects and so by asking these questions you're hoping to be able to get this person some help you assess their risk and they'll get help based on how dangerous their situation is and I said, if you look at the case now, this is difficult to go back and do in Gabby's case because the way that the evidence was presented to the officers, as we've talked about at length, is that Gabby was the primary aggressor. So if things have been different, if officers have been able to somehow get the truth out of the situation and, and, and could have developed evidence that Brian was the aggressor and they had asked Gabby these questions. Now, granted, we don't know a lot of these answers because we don't know what their history was, but if we go down to just a few of them, you look at if the victim believes the aggressor will try to kill the victim, that's number three. We don't know if Gabby would have believed that Brian would try to kill them. I don't think she would have, but again, we don't know. But number four, if the aggressor has a gun or could easily get a gun. Maybe at the time they're in the van, no, but it's clear that Brian eventually shot himself with a revolver. So at some point in their relationship, he was going to have access to a gun. And maybe he had had access to a gun in the past. Uh, if the aggressor's ever tried to choke the victim, well, that is how... He ended up killing her with manual strangulation. We don't know if he had ever done that before and let up so that she didn't die. Um, but ultimately, that is going to be the way that she dies. Six, if the aggressor is violently or constantly jealous or controls most of the daily activities. Well, we heard that from the friend even back before this whole trip, uh, how they quit. He, she had to work at the same grocery store as him so she he could keep an eye on her. Uh, and he wasn't happy about her taking uh, these other jobs, and then she wasn't happy about her on social media because of the jealousy issues and the control issues that he had. So 
And then if the victim left or separated from the aggressor after they lived together or married, well, we know they were dating in high school. They probably weren't living together, but they did have a break. They get back together. And then after this Moab incident, there's another break. And then, you know, they get back together. It's, I know it's not the same, but it's definitely showing that there's signs of, of one or two of them trying to leave during parts of the relationship. Uh, if the aggressor is unemployed, well, we know Brian sold watercolors and maybe had some graphic design and at times he had jobs, but it didn't sound like he was, you know, your stable Monday through Friday, eight to four type of guy. Uh, if the aggressor has ever attempted suicide, well, we don't know if he had a history of that, but that's how he ended up dying. And then we don't have, there's no children, so the number 10 doesn't apply, but the aggressor follows or spies on the victim or leaves threatening messages for the victim, there's a good possibility that that stuff was going on. So there's a large portion of this lethality, even without knowing what's going on in their relationship on an intimate level, that we can identify a lot of his behaviors were, were danger behaviors for this relationship. And this is similar to the lethality assessments that I would have victims do with advocates at a shelter that served in the county that I worked in. Um, it is a useful tool in identifying high-risk individuals that could become victims of domestic violence homicide and serves as a gateway to getting them more help. And as I mentioned, that being said, I don't know that this would have changed anything in the Gabby Petito case. Just, just because, as we talked about, she wasn't cooperative in answering anything that would get him in trouble. And this assessment, the, the real shortcomings of the assessments is that it relies on the cooperation and honesty of the victim. So, you know, if you don't have a victim that's actually going to be willing to cooperate, and again... I'll say it again, I know it's not their fault. They're trapped in these abusive relationships. They fear what's gonna happen if they tell the truth. I get, I'm not saying that these people are, are knowingly going out of their way to make things difficult for themselves or law enforcement or, or whatever. I'm just saying that because that dynamic exists, sometimes these lethality assessments, these domestic assault investigations are just so difficult because you need evidence to do stuff, but you can't get evidence from somebody who's not cooperating. But this goes to show how deeply complicated and tragic these long-standing relationships with domestic violence and our control can be. Law enforcement isn't supposed to act on gut instincts when it comes to probable cause for a crime. They need solid evidence, and sometimes that creates gray areas like the one in Moab. So I understand that Gabby was scared to be away from Brian as codependency, especially for women who have been physically, mentally, and or emotionally abused and controlled is a very tough part of toxic relationships. But we also have to realize law enforcement will never be a 100% solution and prevention to crimes of violence. And this is something that we look at in society today and whether it's teachers, um, different professionals, law enforcement, whatever it is we like to we like to blame these people for the failures of children in schools or criminals on the streets or whatever it might be and we refuse to look at the people who who raised this child who didn't teach them right from wrong who you know when children are struggling to read in school and the parents aren't reading to their kids or enforcing reading time or whatever it might be and then they they blame the teachers for the fact their kids can't read uh it's the same thing with again with law enforcement we 
we can't rely on law enforcement or teachers or professions to fix all of the world's problems. We have to fix them you know, as a society, as an individual person, try to be better and, and make better decisions. And, and hopefully someday uh, we'll get there. And the final point I'll make for this episode is I understand this story once again raised the missing white girl syndrome flags. And I'll say it again, I 100% support more attention for missing and endangered women of color. But this case was already heavy in social media outcry because of Gabby's social media presence, which I think is a major contributor to the reason it went so viral. Uh, So I'm not denying that this missing white girl syndrome exists. It definitely does. I'm just saying in this case, it's one of those that's hard because if this was a woman of color that had a social media following like Gabby did, it's likely it would have gotten a good amount of coverage. I can't ever compare and say it would have gotten as much, and that's something that needs to be worked on by our society and our media and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to do my best to pledge to make sure I find more stories of crimes of violence against women of color to make sure their plight is recognized and spoken about as well. So I'm going to do my best when I look up these cases. I also understand that a lot of cases against women of color are underreported and that makes it harder to research those cases and present them but i'm going to do a better job and if you guys if you have to hold me accountable for that shoot me an email remind me whatever you need to do Uh, i'm human too i'll make mistakes i'll say things and then not follow through with them but that's something i i I feel very strongly about so uh, if you know some good cases that are out there uh, crimes against uh, women of color that i'll gladly uh, Take your emails and look through them and, and do what I can with those cases. But, but that's it for the case of Gabby Petito. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.